Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 130th episode of the Notacast titled The Most Dangerous Game, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Theon 4 in which Theon decides to make up for all of his bad decisions by making some even worse decisions. How did this happen? It's Theon, right? He's the hero. This is this is completely unlike him. Not a pre-established pattern at all for Theon Greyjoy. No, it's this is something very, very new for Theon. Oh, oh Theon. Gosh, here we go. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester Joom, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of, Mis- and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quill Lion, Ward of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Helms, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord, Ra- Lord, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Bayfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer a- queer Alex, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies, and Gentle Dems, Holdover, the Waiter for T-Wild, A.A. Braun, Damp Hair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Kulgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Blunder Pates, and Maker of Drawings, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes. Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shipper Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows. Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harrenhal. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plague. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the <laughs> Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Bander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Ward of the South, and the heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zors. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance. Squire, Matt S. Future Sir, Future Sir, Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. And finally, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall. Thank you to all of our Not A Small Counselors. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' novels, histories, interviews, the Winds of Interstable chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Warden of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, who asks, 
We know from George's original outline that Arya was supposed to reunite with Catelyn and get north to the Wall. Of course, that changed, and Clash saw the start of her being pushed toward Bravos first. I wonder what could have been the original way George wanted Arya to get back with Catelyn and go north again. Would Yorin have gotten her to Winterfell, or could she have originally been able to get to Kerwin or Glover in time? What are the thoughts of the Aemon brothers? Well, what do you think about that, Jeff? Because there's these options for Arya to get north in a Clash of Kings that don't pay off. Could those be like the ghosts of the original storylines that George wanted to use to actually get her north? I think so. I I think the idea was probably more... <laughs> in George's mind, it was more like, yeah, Arya is going to go north, and I'm going to figure out how this is going to happen along the way. George is a gardener, and let's talk a little bit about George's gardening style. Gardening doesn't mean that George is like, I have no fucking idea how the plot is going to proceed. I'm just going to write however I kind of really want to go. What it means is that he plants a seed. Arya is going to go north at some point, and he decides how it's going to get there, meaning that he's going to write his way to that plot end state or that plot midpoint, wherever it's actually going to be. In Arya's case, I have to imagine this was a plot point that George abandoned relatively early in the process because essentially George had written Yorin in the plot early on. He had also had Yorin show up in the Game of Thrones at her seven, seven or six or seven or eight. One of those, one of those at her chapters, six, seven or eight. I believe it's six or seven. And then we have Arya then taking off with Yorin at the end of, a, of a, at the end of a Game of Thrones to head up north. We don't know it's Yorin until we're actually in a Clash of Kings. But likely that chapter was written before a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings was split, given that a lot of the material, Arya's material specifically, feels like it was written pre pre nineteen ninety six for reasons that maybe maybe it's just a feeling in my part. But anyways, I just I just feel that way. So I, I do think that that Yorin as the potential plot vehicle to get Arya back to Winterfell was something that George may have considered. But the reality. was was that he was looking more at Arya going someplace besides Winterfell and not reuniting with Catelyn Stark, her, his, her mom, uh, at, at the end of whatever book he was planning on that happening. So I, I think it's interesting that we have all of these potential pathways for Arya to get north and George ends up always just setting up roadblocks for Arya for for this to happen. We have everything from Yorin dying, of course, to of course the Red Wedding, to the the ship that doesn't take her up to Eastwatch that ends up taking her to Bravos because they believe her to be a faceless man. So George has done a lot of work in setting up roadblocks for Arya's future to get up to Winterfell, but of course at some point she's going to get back in Winterfell after George writes his 35 chapters set in Bravos for Arya Stark in the Winds of Winter. Anyways, sir, I've talked enough. What do you think? No, I think you're right on the money. I think obviously Arya was supposed to, you know, eventually return back to Winterfell. That's the overall structure for all the Stark children. I think the way George has extended her stories works perfectly great in terms of the themes of her character, in terms of her struggle with death and violence and identity. And I think that, you know, geographically has had to kind of make things up on the fly. But also I think sending Catelyn and Arya north of the Wall has no particular resonance to their characters. It's not bad. It just doesn't really fit anything we know about them. I think tying them, tying Catelyn to the Riverlands makes more sense. I think Arya fits perfectly fine everywhere she's gone. So I think abandoning that storyline, he didn't really lose anything. And I think, you know, Mance and the Wildlings, as they've, as they've played out in the story, mostly through John's eyes, I think have also functioned really well. So I think this, I think this was a, yeah, a fairly natural story development. And I think George might have been teasing in that direction in the Clash of Kings when he has all these opportunities for it to get north and then, you know, and then, then it doesn't happen. Sometimes he likes, you know, showing us a glimpse of those earlier roads he didn't go down before he wrenches his characters along a different path. So thank you so much to Lord Micah for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. 
where you can get show notes, a 32 bonus, a Song of Ice and Fire slash pop culture episodes, access to the Nata Slack, shoutouts, and merch. Speaking of that merch, our final designs are finally in. Our residents over at the Nata Slack saw one sample of the designs that Mallory sent our way, but there are actually 10 total ones, five for each of the two final designs, so we couldn't be more pleased with what Mallory did for us. So go ahead and check out our October update post. Uh, if you were listening to this episode on the release day, it would have been released this past Tuesday, the 6th of October. If you're listening to this one live or watching live, that uh, that post will be out tomorrow around noontime or so. So check that out. Can't wait. And our, of course, our Sworn Swords and higher level patrons will get a t-shirt with that design on them. And those designs will also be available for purchase on Threadless 2 if you want to get like, I don't know, 12, 15 shirts for your entire family, including the babies. The babies have to have one of those like onesies, right? For the Nodcast onesie. We have to have that, right? Of course, they'll have, they have to be fashionable. They'll be left out otherwise. Can't have Abs- that. Absolutely. And we're an inclusive family here. So your family is our family is your family. Okay, I'm just going to move on. <laughs> but enough about Patreon. When we last checked it with Theon Greyjoy, he had heroically con- conquered Winterfell. Okay, Winterfell. He did actually. He's in Winterfell. Really? How did that asshole do that? Let's find out how Thre- Theon Greyjoy's glorious reign commences in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Theon Four. One moment he was asleep, the next awake. Kyra nestled against him, one arm draped lightly over his, her breasts brushing his back. He could hear her breathing, soft and steady. The sheet was tangled about them. It was the black of night. The bedchamber was dark and still. What is that? Did I hear something? Someone? No, no, Theon, you heard nothing. Go back to sleep. It's fine. Truly, no need to bestir your ass. Wind blows against the shutters outside of Theon's room, and he hears a cat yowling. Theon starts to take my advice that it's nothing, truly. He reminds himself that he has guards at the gates on the armory and outside of his room. It was just a bad dream, but, um, he wasn't dreaming? Kyra had worn him out. Until Theon had sent for her, she had lived all of her 18 years in the Wintertown without ever setting foot inside the walls of the castle. She came to him wet and eager and lithe as a weasel, and there had been a certain undeniable spice to fucking a common tavern wench in Lord Eddard Stark's own bed. Man, this is some classic hero's journey shit here. Joseph Campbell is smiling down from heaven at Theon. I'm sorry, actually, I'm hearing that he's rolling his eyes as his body does somersaults in the grave. Anyhow, Kyra talks a little in her sleep, and Theon unwraps himself from her arms. He sees the fireplace down to a few embers while Wex sleeps on the ground. So, so wait a minute. Let me get this right. You mean to tell me that Theon Squire was on the ground while Theon was fucking Kyra? Very cool. Theon crosses the room, opens the shutters, and listens to the dark night and hears only the silence. All's well, Greyjoy. Hear the quiet? You ought to be drunk with joy. You took Winterfell with fewer than thirty men, a feat to sing of. Theon started back to bed. He'd roll Kyra on her back and fuck her again. That ought to banish these phantoms. Her gasps and giggles would make a welcome respite from the silence. He stopped. He had grown so used to the howling of the direwolves that he scarcely heard it anymore. But some part of him, some hunter's instinct, heard its absence. Theon, literal Nimrod Greyjoy, observes that the wolves are quiet to the man outside of his door and tells the guy with the unfortunate name of Urzen, is that the name, to go check it out. The hero, Theon, then kicks Wex to wake him up and orders his squire to go check to make sure that Bran and Rickon were in their beds. He keeps listening to the wolves, reflecting that he has too few men. And if his sister showed up and the kids were gone, 
Wex returns, shaking his head. Theon then curses and grabs his clothes where he left them in a pile on the floor and rolls out his wild hair flowing behind him. But then Urzan, really, Ironborn moms and dads, I just want to talk about the naming system you guys are using here, returns and informs Theon that the wolves were gone too. Theon told himself he must be as cold and deliberate as Lord Eddard. Rouse the castle, he told them. Herd them out into the yard. Everyone, we'll see who's missing. And have Lauren make a round of the gates. Wex, with me. Theon wonders if his man Sticks, come on, what kind of name of Stig has arrived at Deepwood Mott? If Asha was coming after Theon lost the Starks, that would be real bad to Theon's sense of machismo and hollow masculinity. Theon and the boys find Brandon Rickon's bedchamber empty. He curses himself knowing he should have put a guard on the Stark kids, but then how was he supposed to man the walls and the gates? He hears crying from outside as Winterfell's small folk are herded into the yard and promise he's going to give them a reason to really sob. I've used them gently, and this is how they repay me. He'd have, he'd even have two of his own men whip bloody for raping that kennel girl to show them he meant to be just. He still blame me for the rape, though, and the rest. He deemed that unfair. Micken, well, he had killed himself with his mouth, just as Benfred had. As for Shale, he had get, he had to give someone to the drowned god. His men expected it. I bear you no ill will, he told the Septon before they threw him down the well. But you and your gods have no place here now. You'd think that the others might be grateful he hadn't chosen one of them, but no. He wondered how many of them were, on, were part of this plot against him. A lot of subtle signs from George here that Theon is the hero and good. No. The Urzen returns to tell Theon that they need to go to the Hunter's Gate. So Theon follows Urzen to the Hunter's Gate, the gate that leads out to the fields and forests outside of Winterfell. When they get there, he asks who is guarding the gate, and he's told that it's Drennan, uh, it's Drennan and Squint. Fuck it, I just give up, man. Next Iron Guy is going to be named like Ass Shit Butt Stuff, I swear. Anyways, Drennan was out, was one of the men who had raped Pala, and Theon threatens to do more than take the skin off the backs with a little whipping. But Black Lauren, finally, one of the Stabroni says a mother and father loved him enough to give him a real name. Anyways, Black Lauren tells Theon they don't need to whip those guys. Squint was lying face down in a moat with his intestines hanging up behind him while Drennan was slumped over a table by a piece of cheese and cheese knife and an empty flagon and two cups. Detective Theon picks up the wine cup to smell the dregs, asking if Squint was on the wall walk. Lauren says yes. So Theon very dramatically throws the cup into the hearth for reasons that are really only clear to Theon. He says it was the woman in the gatehouse with a with a cheese knife. Case closed, but it wasn't. Not really. They put they pull Squint out of the moat, finding him all torn up and smelling bad. Obviously, Theon, an extremely hard boiled detective, thumbs his chin and declares that the direwolves did it. Anyways, Theon is pissed about the whole state of things. He realizes that he didn't have enough men and couldn't guard both walls, especially if there was an uprising from within the castle. So he had only ordered the inner wall of Winterfell guarded. Theon returns to detective mode, realizing that there had to be more than two people involved in this scheme to get Bran and Rickon out of Winterfell. He moves up the wall walk, sees some blood there, thinks the woman killed Drennan, then lowered the drawbridge, and that's where Squint got got. Urzen thinks that maybe someone else saw since there were torches in the nearby turret, right? No, moron, Theon is doing that for decoration. He doesn't have enough men to ban all the turrets. For Guards at this main gate, said Black Lord, and five walking the walls beside Squint. Arson said, if he had sounded the horn, I am served by fools, Theon thought. Try and imagine it was you up there, Arson. It's dark and cold. You have been walking sentry for hours, looking forward to the end of your watch. Then you hear a noise, move toward the gate, and suddenly you see eyes at the top of the stair, glowing green and gold in the torchlight. Two shadows come rushing toward you faster than you believe. You catch a glimpse of teeth, start to level your spear, and they slam it to you and open your belly, tearing through leather as if it were cheesecloth. Theon gave Urzen a hard shove. And now you're down on your back. Your guts are spilling out, and one of them has his teeth around your neck. Theon grabbed the man's scrawny throat, tightened his fingers, and smiled. Tell me. 
At what moment during all this do you stop to blow your fucking horn? He shoved Urzan away roughly, sending him stumbling back against the Merlon. The man rubbed his throat. I should have had those beasts put down the day we all took the castle, he thought angrily. I'd see them kill. I knew how dangerous they were. Black Lauren says they should head after the boys, but Theon's like, dude, no, we're not going after them in the dark. They'll go at break of dawn. But anyways, we have some small folk to terrorize. I mean, interrogate. Let's go do that. Down in the yard, an uneasy crowd of men, women, and children had been pushed against the wall. Many had not been given time to dress. They covered themselves with woolen blankets or huddled naked under cloaks or bedrobes. A dozen iron men hemmed them in, torches in one hand and weapons in the other. The wind was gusting and the flickering orange light reflected dully off steel helms, thick beards and unsmiling eyes. Theon is rather upset that he, in fact, had not been greeted as a liberator of Winterfell. He asks how many were missing, and wouldn't you know it, but Reek steps up. Reek, yeah. And says there are six gone. Reek, now smelling of soap, now smelling of soap, states that the Starks, the Reeds, Hodor, and Asha, Osha, are all gone. Osha, he had suspected her from the moment he saw the second cup. I should have known better than to trust that one. She's as unnatural as Asha. Even their names sounded like, whoa, whoa. Blowing my hair back there, Theon. This is intense intellectual work on Theon's part to connect that Osha and Asha sound alike. Theon asks if any horses are gone and none are. And Theon, using that big brain of his, deduces that they're on foot. So they'd probably be slow as Brandon Rickon would have to be carried. He knows he'll have them soon enough. He directs his attention to the crowd of liberated... Liberated, yeah. Winterfellers. He tells them that Bran and Rickon are gone and would anyone be so helpful as to tell Theon where they went? No one stirs. So Theon tries another trick, saying he's very, very concerned about Bran and Rickon out in the wild all by themselves with no food or weapons. Theon thinks that the weapons had all been hidden away, but he figures that there are some saw there are some weapons that are probably missing. Anyways, he's going out hunting for them. They'll skin the wolves, and people who help can have a wolf pelt. Gage, you in, buddy? No? Okay. How about you, old Dan? No? Okay. Theon decides he has one more rhetorical trip trick up his sleeve, threatened to murder the shit out of everyone. I might have had you all killed, every man of you, and given your women to my soldiers for their pleasure. But instead, I protected you. Is this the thanks you offer? Joseph, who groomed his horses, Farland, who taught him all he knew of hounds, Barth, the brewer's wife, who'd been his first, not one of them would meet his eyes. They hate me? He realized. Reek stepped close. Strip off their skins, he urged, his thick lips glistening. Lord Bolton, he used to say a naked man had few secrets, but a flayed man's got none. So helpful, Ramsay Reek. Theon remembers the sigil of House Bolton and how long ago the Boltons had flayed their enemies, especially the Starks. Now that stopped when the Boltons were finally subdued, but the old ways might be continuing. Who's to know of such things? Yeah. But Theon bravely, declare, bravely declares there will be no flayings as long as he's ruling Winterfell. He's the last defense against such barbaric practices, and he wants to shout as much to the people, but he couldn't be so blatant. They'll get the hint, right? The sky turns gray, and Theon knows that dawn is nearing. He orders Joseph to saddle his horse, Smiler, and one for himself. He then commands Merch, Garrus, and Poxytim to come too. He's bringing four of his own guys as well. He also wants Farland, the Kennelmaster, to accompany him. The grizzled Kennelmaster crosses arms. And why would I care to hunt down my true-born lords and babes at that? Theon moved close. I am your true-born lord now, and the man who keeps Pala safe. He saw the defiance die in Farland's eyes. I, my lord. I mean, <laughs> I, when I was writing the synopsis, I really couldn't muster a sarcastic comeback to Theon here because, wow, just the fucking audacity of what Theon is saying to Farland after what happened to Paula previously. 
Theon looks around and sees Maester Lewin and tells the Maester that he's coming too. Lewin says, nah, but Theon wants Lewin with him on the hunt. He doesn't trust Lewin back at the castle. Finally, one of the Waterfrays pipes up that he wants to come and get a wolfskin cloak too. He's an expert hunter. His cousin mocks it by saying that he's never actually hunted shit, just to come to his dad. Little note, the hunter here is probably Little Water, the one mocking his big water. Theon says, uh, okay, but he's not going to help the kid if he can't keep up. Theon then gives command of the castle to Blacklorn, and they get ready to go hunting. They assembled by the hunter's gate as the first pale rays of sun brush the top of the bell tower, the breath frosting in the cold morning air. Gelmar had equipped himself with a long axe whose reach would allow him to strike before the wolves were on him. The blade was heavy enough to kill with a single blow. Agar wore steel greaves. Reek arrived carrying a boar spear and an overstuffed washerwoman sack bulging with God knows what. Theon had his bow. He needed nothing else. Once he had saved Bran's life with an arrow, he hoped he would not need to take it with another. But if it came to that, he would. Eleven men, two boys, and twelve dogs crossed the moat and began following the tracks of the wolves, Hodor and the reeds. Farland's dog catches the, the scent and this hound sniff and bark and begin racing after the trail. The trail, though, doesn't lead to the south where Theon might have suspected Osha to make for, towards, of course, Roger Cassell, who is now fighting in Corrin Square. Instead, the trail moves into the wolf's wood. Theon did not like that one bit. It would be a bitter irony if the Starks had made for Deepwood Mont and delivered themselves right into Asha's hands. I'd sooner have them dead, he thought bitterly. It's, it, it is better to be seen as cruel than foolish. <laughs> Yeah, ain't that the Theon Greyjoy model? The hunters move through thick woods and uneven ground, and Theon counsels himself to be patient, because they'll so totally have everyone in captivity by the end of the day. But then Maester Lewin rolls up and ribs Theon that hunting seems no different than riding. Theon says, okay, sure, but at the end of the hunt, there's blood. Lewin asks if there must be the way, but maybe Theon can be merciful to his foster brothers? Theon says that Rob was the only one who was brotherly to him, but he needs Bran and Rickon alive. How about the Reeds, Lewin asks? You probably need them alive, given that Howland Reed can be troubled to knuckle Victorian at Moat Kalen. And you'll find this very odd, but Theon had not considered the Reeds, save for wondering if he could bang the bang mirror, rather. He says he'll spare the Reeds if he can. How about Hodor? Okay, fine. Theon will spare Hodor too, but there's no fucking way he's sparing Osha. The Maester inclined his head. I make no apologies for Oathbreakers. Do what you must. I thank you for your mercy. Mercy, thought Theon as Lewin dropped back. There's the bloody trap. Too much and they call you weak, too little and you're monstrous. Yet the maester had given him good counsel he knew. His father thought only in terms of conquest, but what good was it to take a kingdom if you could not hold it? Force and fear could carry you only so far. A pity Ned Stark had taken his daughter south. Elsewise, Theon could have tightened his grip on Winterfell by marrying one of them. Sansa was a pretty little thing too, and by now even ripe for betting. But she was a thousand leagues away in the clutches of the Lannisters. A shame. Theon is just incredible in so many ways, my god. But now they're in the dense forest, moving through gullies, cuts, stony hills, a crofter's cottage, moving across waters. The dogs start to bark, but it turns out only to be an elk, one that had been recently been savaged by wolves. The odd thing is that Osha would have cut some of the elk's muscle for meat, but it was only the wolves who had been at the elk. That didn't make much sense. Theon asks Farland if they're on the right trail, and Farland says his dogs know Summer and Shaggy well. Theon hopes so, for Farland's sake. Less than an hour later, the trail leads down a slope toward a muddy brook swollen by the recent rains. It was there the dogs lost the scent. Farland and Wex waded across with the hounds and came back shaking their heads while the animals ranged up and down the far bank sniffing. They went in here, my lord, but I can't see where they came out, the kennelmaster said. Theon dismounts and checks the water, feeling how cold it is. He knows they wouldn't have stayed in the river for long, but then Wex claps his hands to get, the, to get Theon's attention and points to the ground. 
the Unluxon only sees paw prints. So Wex, so Wex pounds the bud with his boot to drive the point home, literally. And finally, someone understands. Joseph, Joseph understood. A man of size of Hodor ought to be ought to have left a deep print in the mud, he said. More so with the weight of a boy on his back. Yet the only boot print here are our own. See for yourself. Appalled, Theon saw it was true. The wolves had gone back into the turgid brown water alone. Osha must have turned back aside, back of us, before the elk, most likely. She, she sent the wolves on by themselves, hoping we'd chase after them. Theon rounded on his huntsman. If you two have played me false. There's only been the one in the trail, my lord, I swear it, said Garrus defensively. And the wolves would never have parted from them boys, not for long. Theon realizes reluctantly that this is true, but the direwolves would return to Bran and Rickon at some point. He orders two of his men to head back while he, Wex, Little Water Frey, and Farland chase the direwolves, there to blow their horns when they pick up the trail. They move upstream, searching for the tracks and only finding deer, elk, and badger tracks. They find rabbits and a vixen, but no direwolves. A little farther, Theon told himself. Past the oak, over the rise, past the next bend of the stream, we'll find something there. He pressed on long after he knew he should turn back, a growing sense of anxiety gnawing at his belly. It was midday when he wrenched Smiler's head round in disgust and gave up. Somehow, Osha and the wretched boys were eluding him. It, it should not have been possible. Not on foot, burdened with a cripple and a young child. Every passing hour increased the likelihood that they would make good their escape. If they reached a village, the people of the north would never deny Red Stark's sons, Rob's brothers. They'd have mounts to speed them on their way, food. Men would fight for their honor of protecting them. The whole bloody north would rally around them. Theon thinks the Darwolves went downstream, but when they catch up with Farland's group, they've had no joy either. Theon curses the dogs, but Farland defends the honor of his dogs, stating that the water doesn't have a scent. Theon demands to know where the Darwolves wolf, and Farland sent they went up or downstream, but which way? Reek puts in that the wolves don't run upstream beds for miles. A man might, but surely a wolf? No way. Hmm. Yet Theon wondered. These beasts were not as other wolves. I should have skinned the cursed things. Finally, Theon gets one thing right. No, 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 not about the skinning. I'm not a total monster. Things turn out no better when he rejoins the three Ironborn bros who are retracing their steps back to Winterfell. They hadn't found the trail. Theon refuses to admit defeat, and he declares that they'll search the stream again, going farther and longer than before. Not a sex joke. We won't find them, the Frey boys said suddenly. Not so long as the frog eaters are with them. Mudbitted steaks. They won't fight like decent folks. They'll skulk and use poison arrows. You'll never see them. But they see you. Those who go into the bogs after them, they, they get lost and they never come out. Their houses move. E even the castles like Greywater Watch. Waterfrey glanced nervously at greenery that encircled them all sides. They might even be here right now, listening to everything we say. Farland laughs the Frey off, but Little Water says that the Krannic men smell like the Kranich. Just before Theon can tell Waterfrey where to shove his fairy tale, Maester Lewin pipes in to say that the Kranich band were like the children of the forest and brought down the hammer of the waters on the neck. They might have secret knowledge. Suddenly, the woods seemed a deal darker than it had moments before, as if a cloud had passed before the sun. It was one thing to have some fool boy spouting folly, but, but Maesters were supposed to be wise. The only children that concern me are Bran and Rickon, Theon said. Back to the stream. Now! For a moment, he did not think that they were going to obey, but in the end, old habit asserted itself. They followed sullenly, but they followed. Theon places men on both sides of the river, and they follow the current. They go for miles and miles, moving through increasingly rough terrain. Theon grumbles that the direwolves have become swimming wolves, and he'll give them to the drowned god as a reward. When the woods began to darken, though, Theon knew he was beaten. Either the Krangmen did know the magic of the children of the forest, or else Osha had deceived them with some wildling trick. 
He made them press on through the dusk, but when the last light faded, Joseph finally worked at the courage to say, This is fruitless, my lord. We will lame a horse, break a leg. Joseph has the right of it, said Maester Lewin. Groping through the woods by a torchlight will avail us nothing. Theon could taste bile at the back of his throat, and his stomach was a nest of snakes twining and snapping at each other. If he crept back to Winterfell empty-handed, he might as well dress in motley henceforth and wear a pointed hat. The whole of the north would know him for a fool. My father hears, and Asha. But then Reek rides up next to Theon. He tells Theon that maybe the Starks never came this way. Perhaps they went northeast towards the Umbers. But Umberland was far, far away. They'd have to shelter somewhere. And Ramsay <clears throat> Reek might know where they sheltered. Theon looked at him suspiciously. Tell me. Oh, you know the old mill sitting lonely on the acorn water. Well, I stopped there when I was dragged to Winterfell a captive. The miller's wife sold us hay for our horses while that old knight clucked over her brats. Might be the Starks are hiding there. Theon is aware of the mill, as he'd played hide the kraken with the miller's wife back in the day. He wonders why they'd go there when there's villages and holdfasts they could run to. Reek doesn't know why, he just has a feeling. He says this looking amused, which should unsettle Theon and cause him to wonder at this motherfucker, but Theon is just sick of this guy being sly. He orders the man with lips that look like two worms fucking when they move to tell him if he knows where they went. Reek tells Theon to get off his horse. He has something to show Theon. When Theon gets down, Reek gives him a brown satchel and tells Theon to reach in, have a look. It was growing hard to see. Theon thrust his hand into the sack impatiently, groping amongst soft fur and rough, scratchy wool. A sharp point pricked his skin, and his fingers closed round something cold and hard. He drew out a wolf's head brooch, silver and jet. Understanding came suddenly. His hand closed to a fist. Gelmar, Theon said, wondering whom he could trust. None of them. Agar, Red Nose, with us. The rest of you may return to Winterfell with the hounds. I'll have no further need of them. I know where Bran and Rickon are hiding now. Prince Theon, Maester Lewin entreated. You will remember your promise. Mercy, you said. Mercy was for the morning, said Theon. It is better to be feared than laughed at. Before they may be angry. And that is A Clash of Kings, Theon 4. Wow. Last week, George gave us a bit of a breather with Tyrion, kind of the day-to-day operations going on in King's Landing after all those fast-paced, plot-heavy chapters that preceded it. But now my heart is racing yet again as we come to Theon's fourth chapter. What did you think of this chapter, sir? As great as Theon's first three chapters in this book are, his story takes a huge leap forward in quality when he returns to Winterfell. All the psychological groundwork George did in those earlier chapters is now weaponized. It fuels a ruthless story structure that cuts Theon off from every opportunity of escape, in part due to his own terrible decisions, but also due to events out of his control. Few chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire are more agonizing to read than this one, not so much for the events being depicted as for the slow build of tension and dread, the thought of what might be about to happen. The agony has a clear purpose. We are trapped within the mindset of a man, contemplating breaking even more bad than he already has in the face of all that tension and dread. It is uniquely, devastatingly effective, a masterclass in literary suspense. And that suspense is made further suspenseful and dramatic in this chapter by Theon's attempt to be both Ned Stark and Balin Greyjoy at the same time. Stark and Greyjoy. And he fails at both spectacularly. I mean, is this just because Theon is dumb? I mean, partly sure he's not really the price ball up there. There are plenty of boneheaded thoughts and actions that Theon thinks or commits in this chapter. 
But I kind of want to bring the discussion beyond that. I think people kind of stop there when they're considering Theon Greyjoy. And they don't consider events that preceded this from Theon 1 to 3 and, of course, Bran 6, when Theon actually takes Winterfell. Theon hasn't really been taught how to be a man, how to be moral and decent. Neither of his fathers loved him enough to raise him correctly. Balin, of course, was a mess of resentments and idiocy and all sorts of shitty Greyjoy, Ironborn stuff. And Theon was ripped away even then at an age of 10 from his, fa- from his biological father. Then, as a hostage-slash-ward of Winterfell, Ned was probably too cold to Theon because he knew that if Balin ever rose in rebellion again, Ned would have to bring ice to bear on the boy. That's, of course, not to take anything away from him descending into further moral depravity in this chapter, and even worse situations we find in Theon 5 coming up. It's also not rationalizing his behavior, really, to be like, oh, because Theon was such a, had shitty fathers that Theon was always bound to be this way. You know also has a shitty father? Samuel Tarly. He turns out to be great. We love Samuel Tarly. It's just to say that Theon bears culpability for the sins he commits, even as his father figures and his father bears some of the blame too. And, and ain't that a theme of shitty fathers visiting their sins upon their sons and daughters in A Song of Ice and Fire? I mean, Tywin Dettiri is just the most prominent example as we're going to explore, especially in A Storm of Swords. But there's a more proximate, darker parallel story occurring just beneath the surface and explored more, more fully in A Dance of Dragons. Theon's servant, Reek, had a father who also didn't love him or raise him correctly. That George weaves the final piece of Theon's downfall through Reek is perfect parallel plotting and structure by George. Again, this is just fantastic stuff what George is doing here. I agree. There's just such great parallels and contrasts being woven in with Theon and his his new, uh, you know, tempter slash ultimately antagonist Ramsay, aka Reek in this chapter. And just Theon has to kind of pierce that that dense net of, of signals around him and then ultimately fails to understand who he's really dealing with. And Theon 4 is, above all else, about the translation of information. What does it mean to observe something and then to know something? From Theon examining the evidence Osha left behind, to the manhunt itself, to the half-hidden reveal at the end of the chapter, both the POV and the reader are given limited information and must fill in the gaps. It's a more grounded and realistic examination of the themes that animated the House of the Undying, how the brain makes sense of sensory information. George forces us to engage with details and focuses that engagement through the highly unpleasant narrative camera of Theon Greyjoy. It's an uncomfortable intimacy that becomes an outright horror show as Theon's story continues through the end of this book and into A Dance with Dragons. Theon is doomed before the chapter even begins, and we are doomed to share his fate. After seeing the fall of Winterfell via Bran, we are locked back into Theon's perspective from the very beginning of this chapter. One moment he was asleep, the next awake. Theon wakes from his dreams, his fantasies of who he wants to be, back into the life he actually lives, which is now falling apart around him. What woke him up? Nothing seems to have changed in his perfect world. He has Ned Stark's castle and Ned Stark's bed, a willing woman next to him. This is all Theon ever wanted, bringing to mind Tyrion's famous joke. How would you like to die, Tyrion, son of Tywin? In my own bed with a belly full of wine and a maiden's mouth round my cock at the age of 80, he replied. The resolution of Theon's identity struggle takes the form of frat boy wish fulfillment, plunder and pussy, the twin temptations of the old way. It's oddly childish in the way so many stereotypically masculine He-Man fantasies are. What Theon desires isn't even Kyra herself. 
It's the way her body distracts him from the gnawing sense inside that he's incomplete. That's what he says. Her giggles and gasps will silence this, you know, the silence. They'll distract me from the silence. Basically, Theon is a stunted adolescent. His all-consuming lust is filtered through the way his sense of self broke down in childhood, leading him to the bluntly and hilariously Oedipal <laughs> desire to get his dick wet in his surrogate father's bed. He has fulfilled that fantasy, as well as doing a deed worthy of song and taking Winterfell with only a handful of men. He has self-actualized, so why is he denied the blissful comfort of dreamless sleep? What woke him up? Silence. Nothing. It feels at first like it was the texture of his own inadequacy that woke him, as if he just can't believe his good fortune. Theon tells himself he's achieved his dreams, but his anxiety remains lurking in every corner. Yeah, Theon is extremely anxious in this chapter. And one of the anxieties, of course, is the relationship that Theon has to Ned, which is something we'll be exploring throughout this analysis. And I think George does a good job of starting that by directly calling back to events from A Game of Thrones, namely that Theon to Ned is him in post-coitus, which is what happens in A Game of Thrones' Catelyn 2. There, the chapter opens with Ned and Catelyn also post-coitus, and then what does Ned do? Ned rolled off and climbed from her bed, that is Catelyn's bed, as he had a thousand times before. He crossed the room, pulled back the heavy tapestries, and threw open the high, narrow windows one by one, letting the night air into the chamber. Theon actually does this very same thing in this chapter, throwing off the covers and standing naked in front of the windows, which is... Super normal. But the context here is very, very different from A Game of Thrones. Ned had just made love to his wife, the woman that he loves, and was wrestling with the right thing to do, become Hand of the King or stay in Winterfell. What do I do here? Meanwhile, Theon is getting off on being so transgressive and taking a tavern wench to bed in Ned's own bed. I really love the way you're putting it, being a surrogate father's bed. And something is also wrong. Not just the fact that he's like being just a total piece of shit, but something is wrong in the air. I mean, think about it too, like Ned, for Ned, the quiet of the godswood of him staring out into the cold air of his window, that gave him peace. It helped him to think. For Theon, the quiet means that something is wrong. And George is digging deep into Theon's psychology in this chapter, so it only makes sense that this kind of has a Pavlov feel to it. Part of his experiments on dogs involved the idea of the opposite within the cortex. At a certain point into the conditioning, the dogs would undergo a transmarginal surrender, in which cause and effect regarding a given stimulus reversed. This is what Pavlov called the ultra-paradoxical phase. Earlier in the process, the dogs were conditioned to respond to the presence of a stimulus, like the sound of a metronome, by drooling and whining for food. But the conditioning over time eventually reshaped the dogs' reactions to the point that the lack of stimulus is what caused that response. And George pulls the same trick in this chapter. It's the lack of a stimulus, the wolf howls to which Theon has become accustomed, that throws him off. It's his hunter's instincts at work, as he says, which will be put to the test very soon, and they will ultimately fail him, just as his political instincts have. The fact that Theon has become accustomed to the wolf howls suggests that they've been here a while. It's not made clear how long, but it's long enough for Stig to have reached a deepwood mod, as he says, so... Weeks? Weeks, and what has Theon done? Gotten laid in Ned Stark's bed, that's about it. Oh, he threw Septon Chael down the well. Smart leadership. <laughs> As Asha will tell Theon in his next chapter, the smartest move would have been raising the castle and sailing back home with Bran and Rickon, leaving the Northmen the ashes. With Winterfell gone and Rob's heirs as hostages, the Ironborn would stand a better chance of actually carving a new kingdom out of the north. But Theon hasn't done that. 
Because even though he is ostensibly doing all of this to make Balin love him, he was also raised here. He's more familiar with Winterfell than the Iron Islands, so being in charge here feels more like a victory to him. He doesn't want to just take Winterfell, he wants to keep it. He doesn't want to burn down Ned Stark's castle, he wants to fuck in Ned Stark's castle. <laughs> and that mindset has sabotaged him, screwing him out of his triumph. He deemed it more important to guard the castle than Bran and Rickon, he admits to himself, because the castle is what he cares about. But as he realizes too late, it was much more important for the overall Ironborn cause to hold on to the Starks. Problem is, Theon's motivations only partially line up with the overall Ironborn cause. If Theon really wants to stay at Winterfell long term, he should find a way to make it line up all the way. How can you cement your hold on the castle further the war effort? But Theon hasn't done anything about that either, other than telling Asha to do it for him. Even as he resents how she's usurped his position, he keeps inadvertently proving why she is a better candidate to take over. So he's left in the worst of both worlds. Theon has done just enough to put a target on his back for the Northerners, but not enough to actually help the Ironborn defeat those Northerners. He's an outcast in both tribes now. Absolutely. And I mean, we have to recall, if we must, Balan Greyjoy has ordered Theon back in Theon's second chapter to Clash of Kings. Theon, you are to harry the stony shore, raiding the fishing villages, and skinning and sinking any ships that you chance to meet. It may be that you will draw some of the northern lords out from behind their stone walls. Now, debate exists, and will always exist, about whether Edmure Tully superseded Rob Stark's order to hold River Run. But no such debate exists for Theon, and for good reason. Balon's invasion plan revolved around an incremental, con incremental conquest of the north, with castles and lords falling one by one over the course of a year, with Winterfell falling at the end of it. This is, of course, a horseshit plan full of holes like we talked about back in Theon 2. Really, what was Balon's plan for the Manderleys again? My god! But I would highlight one positive for the plan, at least. The Greyjoys would piss the Northerners off by invading, but it may not have resulted in everyone wanting to see every last Greyjoy or Iron Man dead in the North. Not to worry, though, Theon will helpfully supply this raisin d'etre into the Northmen in the next chapter, as Asha will tell Theon that Roderick and the rest of the North will have a, quote, man's need for revenge given what Theon does to Bran and Rickon. The Northmen already had plenty of passion to defeat the Ironborn already, though, and Theon, especially as he had betrayed his oath to Robb Stark and their homes were under attack. Theon just puts a bow on it by the end of this chapter, and by the time we're in a dance with dragons, Roose Bolton and Stannis Baratheon will both target the Greyjoys in a public relations attempt to curry favor with the Northmen. What does that say about Theon Greyjoy? Nothing good about what he's doing here. Everyone thinks the Iron, Man, Iron Men suck, and they're using them as, the, as a punching bag in order to boost their own reputation. But I think like you really like tied it together really well why he's doing this. This is his home. He's lived here since he was 10 years old. In the place he knows better than Pike, the people he had grown up around, the people who had given him smiles, Farlin, all these guys, Micken, every one of these individuals that, that Theon encounters in this chapter in the courtyard, they had all been his friends at some level. Whether he, they could actually be friends given the power dynamic is unclear, but still, they had been friendly to each other. And his hubris then leads him to think that he can be just like Ned Stark here, cold and just, and he can have his own warts and hostages too. But wait, which way do they go, George? Which way do they go? Yes, so Theon 4 takes place in the shadow of a hypothetical brand chapter that George chose not to include, in which he and Rickon escape. Theon has to follow in the footsteps of actions taken by Team Bran. He is a detective, and so too is the reader trying to puzzle out what happened. Theon's men guarding the Hunter's Gate have been found dead. 
Squint was ripped apart and dumped in the moat. And yeah, like this, he's called Squint. That reminds me of if you read Redwall as a kid, anyone like that was always like the kinds of name the enemies would have. It's just names like Squint and, you know, you know, Evil Eye, just like obvious like bad guy names. And they aren't born of the same way. It's funny. And uh, Drennan's throat uh, was slit. He's, he's found like a with a wine cup, a couple wine cups at a table and his throat was slit. Theon proves himself quite clever, using the observational skills he presumably picked up from hunting to determine what probably went down. He can tell it was the dire wolves that killed Squint, so this must be a full-fledged conspiracy. Someone freed the wolves while another person kept Drennan distracted, hence the second wine cup near his corpse. Theon uses his torch to find evidence. It's a metaphor for sight and art uncovering truth. And he finds some blood that was partially mopped up. So Theon's problem is not that he is ignorant nor incompetent. His problem is that he allows his insecurity to dominate his thoughts and actions. He overcompensates in order to appear tough and treats every setback like a personal insult to him, lashing out at any available target. Urzen tries to help Theon investigate, noting the nearby torches and wondering if Squint had sounded his horn. He's not exactly contributing a great deal, but there is no reason for Theon to react as he does. First, he speaks testily to Urzen, as though Urzen is responsible for Theon's lack of manpower. Maybe Theon should have thought of that before he got here. Then Theon grabs Urzen and shoves him around while telling him in detail how stupid he is for thinking Squint might have had a chance to blow the horn. What is Theon accomplishing here? He hasn't unearthed any valuable insight by walking them through this scenario. He's talking about a hypothetical that doesn't really matter in terms of what they do now. He should engage with Urzen more positively, or even ignore him. That would be better than this. All Theon is doing is making his men hate him. Right, and this is the spot where Theon has zero allies in Winterfell, and he needs the loyalty of his men, the ones who had taken Winterfell for him. Unfortunately, Theon continues his good work, started back in Theon 3, when he accidentally arrowed one of his men when he meant to whiz an arrow past his ear really dramatically. Now he ends up killing him, and now he's ending up choking them out. And there's there's a few things to work with, I think, with how Theon is acting around his men. I mean, he sees them as shitty, evil people, and we're going to talk about more about that in a few minutes. But Theon looks at these guys and sees murderers and rapists, and completely unlike Theon... Again, the self-deception is very real for Theon Greyjoy. Theon looks at all of his men, too, and sees that the same people who bowed their heads to Eskrid slash Asha and refused to pay him homage. Theon was rejected by all of the Ironborn that he met on Pike when he arrived. Meanwhile, Eskrid knew all the people and was a natural-born leader. And where Asha's claims that half her men want to fuck her and half want to fight for her, as she says in A Feast for Crows, they all would die for her all the same. Theon has never been a leader before. He's always played second fiddle. He was Brendan Tully's pick scout, not the chief scout. He was Rob Stark's right-hand man. And that's the undercurrent for Theon is that he's never had to lead men in the way that Asha, Rob, or others have. He's never been trained for leadership either. Ned is really not going to teach Theon how to be a leader. He might lead Iron Men against the Starks one day after all. Finally, and this, this is all related to Theon's snobbery and class consciousness. Theon is a better man than those he commands. He can fight better, fuck better, think better, lead better. Now, Theon is extremely delusional here, and that delusion is really, really bad because it's so shallow. When Theon has the chance to assert his dominance, he does because he's thin-skinned and he's always trying to prove himself as opposed to being an example for his men, being the leader of Winterfell despite the bad circumstances that he came into that position of leadership. There's, there's so many so many layers of dysfunction with Theon, so many bad ideas he's bringing to the table, and so many incomplete ideas he's bringing to the table. And it's just so revealing that Theon is indulging in these scary fantasies about the direwolves. He's afraid of them. They stand in for House Stark and the North that now despises him, and they're going to hunt him through his dreams in his next chapter. 
Theon also threatens to take more than a little skin from his men if they let the boys escape. So much for no flaying in the north if he's in charge, as he says later. Even before Theon takes direct action to try and solve this problem, George is showing us the myriad ways in which he's already failed. Theon's relationship to himself is bad, his relationship to his men is worse, and his relationship to the people he has conquered is the worst of all. He hears the residents of Winterfell sobbing as his men force them from their beds and drive them to the Great Hall on Theon's own orders. Does he feel any sympathy for their wretched plight? Any sense of responsibility for the suffering he's inflicting on these powerless people? Nope. As per usual, Theon treats self-awareness like a hot stove, jerking his hand back from it immediately after touching it and running his hand under the cool, soothing water of delusion and arrogance. In order to do better, Theon would have to face himself as he actually is, but he can't bear to do that, so he continues to get worse, blaming everyone else. I'll give them reason to sob, he tells himself. As far as Theon is concerned, he has treated the people gently, and they have repaid him with betrayal. This is just the most ludicrous thought process. Theon thinks that he had two of his men whipped for raping Paula. See, I mean to be just. But Paula never would have been in danger if Theon hadn't conquered Winterfell in the first place, and he refuses to face that. Theon also thinks that Micken got himself killed, and that he had to give Septon Chael to the Drowned God, ex you know, explaining away each individual case while ignoring the cumulative effect. Theon is trying to absolve himself of all responsibility because he knows deep down how awful all of this is. Same dynamic took place back on the Stony Shore in Theon 3. Theon realized how appalling the old way actually is in execution, but he can't conceive of abandoning it. That would leave him, once more, without an identity. So he tries to play a role he doesn't even believe in. Theon is ostensibly in charge here, but in truth he is ruled by the perception of others. He lacks a stable image of himself in his mind's eye. He can only create a personality out of the shards of others, the eyes of the beholders. Of course, this identity crisis only gets worse as Theon's story continues. Ramsay breaks his identity down and gives him a new one, that of Reek. As it stands, Theon is still trying to live up to the projected shadow self of the old way, which he only knows about from stories, not lived experience. That's what led him to murder Chael, a gentle man who hadn't even defied Theon like Mekin. Theon kills him to mark a cultural change he doesn't believe in, nor understand, in tribute to a god he doesn't pray to. He did so by throwing Chael down a well, presumably to symbolize the triumph of their water god over the faith. But what it actually does is spoil a vital source of water in a castle that might soon be under siege. The old way is not only fanatically cruel, it's delusional. To follow its edicts is to reject the evidence of your own senses, declaring your political and metaphysical triumph by denying yourself water, the stuff of life itself. What about the other influence on Theon, the Starks? Theon tells himself he must be as cold and deliberate as Lord Eddard, because that's the only model of leadership he actually knows, and because he is aware that the people of Winterfell were very fond of Ned, but he doesn't get why they loved him. <laughs> All Theon can do is ape the effect, the image of Ned, the surface without the substance, as he can only imitate stories he's heard about the old way. Ned was cold and deliberate, yes, but as Catelyn says, there was still a warm, loving heart under there, and he let almost everyone know it. Almost. Theon is the one resident of Winterfell unable to see Ned as a source of love as well as strength, because Theon always, always saw Ned as the figure of doom who broke his home and might kill him one day. So Theon demands the same respect Ned got, while doing none of the things Ned did to earn it. 
Ned cared about Micken. He never would have had him killed for an insult. Nor would he ever lay a finger on Septon Shale, despite believing in the old gods himself. That wasn't his way. Ned had an ethos. It was flawed. It didn't save him. But it's why his family and his people remember him. Theon has nothing. Nothing at all inside. Ned looked at people and saw individuals worth plucking out of the crowd and listening to. Theon, as he says, sees only a swarm, and they all look guilty to him. Mm, and it's fascinating that Theon zeroes in on his own conception of Ned as a cold, distant man willing to execute Theon as the, as the way that he attempts to emulate and ape him. Theon takes Ned at face value in a surface way, but it's in that face value surface way that it's really the only way that Theon saw Ned. And you're right that Ned cared about Micken and Shale and the small folk of Winterfell, and he would probably not execute them for insulting him. Probably not. But I presuppose that Ned would never face such a moral quandary because no one would defy Ned the way that they're showing defiance towards Theon. Now, part of that is, of course, because Ned is highborn, he is a lord, and he's a high lord at that. He also has the surname of Stark behind him, too. That's the part that Theon saw, the lordship and the surname. What he doesn't see is that Ned also cared for his people, welcomed them to table, knew his people by name, brought the mountain clansmen to table, visited his lords all around the north. So in addition to all the horrendous actions that Theon has committed and will continue to commit as we progress through A Clash of Kings, he hasn't put any work to emulate Ned in any way, but the only way that he ever saw Ned as. That's a great distinction to point out. You know, I think it's, you know, Ned did have the advantage of a good reputation to trade on. I think he made the best of it. But Theon has to come up with something from scratch, and he really doesn't know how to do it, and, and the seams are showing in front of everyone. So he lacks both the personal touch and the millennia of history to call upon that Ned had. So he looks over this, this swarm of faces in Winterfell staring back at him, and there are six faces missing, none of which exactly come as surprises to the reader. Bran and Rickon, Jojen and Mira, Hodor, and Osha. Theon was a fool to take Osha's pledge of loyalty at face value, as it turns out, and now he reaps the consequences. Yet all he can do is linker in his mind to Asha, another woman who confounds his precious masculine ego. Theon does again demonstrate that his problem is not incompetence. Like Tyrion, he knows how to zero in on the most important piece of information. In this case, the most important piece of information is that Bran and Rickon are on foot. As rereaders, we know why that is. They're not actually leaving the castle at all. But Theon sees the opportunity in the moment. It means he can catch up to them. So far, so good. Where Theon exposes his weaknesses is how he engages with the people of Winterfell. First, he just demands the names of those who helped the boys escape. He offers neither carrots nor sticks, he just demands it, and nothing happens. Failing that, Theon says he means to use them as huntsmen. And the way he puts that into action is by asking who wants a new wolfskin for the winter? Hard to imagine a worse way of phrasing that. <laughs> You're asking Stark loyalists to help you butcher the family symbol, guardians of the princes. Naturally, no one responds to that either. So Theon then appeals to their love for the boys, saying they'll be alone, frightened, in danger out there. This is preposterous on multiple levels. First of all, they're not alone. They have Osha, Hodor, and the Reeds, who are taking care of them. Secondly, no one is going to believe that Theon sincerely cares about the boy's well-being given his status as conqueror. And thirdly, he just threatened to kill the wolves who keep those same Stark boys safe. So finally, Theon pivots to naked threats fueled by bitterness and resentment. I could have killed and raped you all, and I didn't. This demonstrates how the race to the bottom in the Civil War has led to a universal degradation of values. Theon is only able to tell himself that he's a good guy because the bar has fallen so low. 
Sure, he's technically less bad than, like, Rorge and Biter, but that Theon demands praise and support from his victims for clearing that low bar makes his restraint conditional. It implies he might take it away. Same applies to his new ally, Reek, a.k.a. Ramsay, who recommends flaying the people of Winterfell, his lips glistening at the thought. <laughs> Theon thinks of himself as the only protection the people have from an outright sadist like that. But wait, who was it who let Reek out of his cell in the first place? The Starks had him locked up, Theon. You let him go. Once again, Theon refuses to internalize his own responsibility. He cannot get outside his own head because he doesn't recognize his own face in the mirror, and so realizes they all hate him without understanding why. These are the people I know. The only people I really know. They were there for my first hunt, my first sexual experience, and now they look at me like I'm a stranger, or worse, an enemy. It's a reflection of how Balin treated Theon upon his arrival on the Iron Islands. Like Tyrion, Theon is sympathetic in terms of the situation he has been put in, the sins of the father rebounding and leaving him no safe harbor in life. But also like Tyrion, Theon remains responsible for everything he does in order to fill that hole inside, especially his using and abusing of people who have nothing to do with his daddy issues and just want to be left alone to survive. Wherever he turns, Theon finds himself alone, on the outside, a clouded mirror that won't tell him who he is, who he's supposed to be. So he's constantly auditioning, playing a role that keeps changing, lacking even a hint of authenticity. The people can tell, and respond accordingly. He can't even be a focused, committed tyrant. He keeps vacillating throughout this speech, from honey to vinegar, carrots to sticks, with no structure to it. Even if the people didn't hate him, he hasn't given them a consistent set of incentives they can act upon. Theon is politically incoherent. It's a total failure of leadership rooted firmly in Theon's identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is. So he can't possibly convey a cohesive shadow on a wall as the new master of Winterfell. Underneath that shell game of selfhood, all Theon actually has to work with is cruelty. After all that talk about how he did justice by whipping Paula's rapists, he threatens to expose her to them once more, unless Farlin helps him hunt down Bran and Rickon. Because Theon is ruling only through fear and a pathetic, incoherent version of that, he knows he can't even afford to leave Maester Lewin behind, because he knows Maester Lewin well enough to know that Lewin will lead a probably successful rebellion in his absence. That's how fragile Theon's rule of Winterfell is, because of how he's handled it. He also takes Reek along, thinking of him as one of his own men because he learned nothing from Osha. Little Walder Frey comes along just to hunt wolves, such as Theon's last hero hunting party in this chapter. Bullies, sadists, and people he has to threaten into helping him. He is reaping what he sowed. He absolutely is. And this portion of the chapter reminds me of Arya's 10th chapter in A Clash of Kings, chapter we haven't gotten to in the main cast. I mean, Bruce Bolton tells Kyburn that he intends to hunt the wolves around Harrenhal, and then we have here little Walter Frey joining in the hunt, and that falls, I believe, along similar thematic and symbolic importance to the overall plot in A Song of Ice and Fire, especially when it's concerning the Freys and the Boltons. As soon as Bran slash Rob lose or start to look like they might lose, the Freys and Boltons turn from allies with helpful armies to life and or death enemies. And again, we see the dynamic we explored back in Bran's first chapter with Little Walter Frey as he jumps at the opportunity to be a cruel, evil little shit. Meanwhile, though, Big Walter Frey, our supervillain in waiting, if you remember our discussion about that, that episode, decides on a less dangerous course. He's staying behind. 
To me, it feels like Big Walter is hedging his bets, making jokes about his cousin, but not going out to do the dangerous work. But he's also not making himself much of a threat to Bran either, or even to Theon too. Big Walter has to sense the mood of the castle at some level and maybe has an inkling of the strategic situation, knowing that if he jumps full throated against Bran, he might end up dead to the hands of eventual Northmen, either from within the castle or without when Roger Cassell returns. That's a good point. I think everyone's trying to read the room and, and you know, make their jump when they can, like George says about Roose Bolton in the lead up to the Red Wedding, and some are more eager to jump in than others, and everyone has their reasons, and Theon isn't as good at seeing through them as he seems to think he is. He leaves Winterfell in the hands of Black Lauren, one of his most violent followers, and says that he can do whatever he wants with the castle if Theon doesn't make it back. Again, this completely undercuts Theon's pretense that he hasn't been all that bad as the new Lord of Winterfell. He threatens the people with mayhem in order to get them praying for his success. He makes himself the lesser evil, even though he's the one who just empowered the greater evil, as with empowering Reek, a.k.a. Ramsay. It is precisely by telling himself that he's not so bad that Theon allows himself to get worse and worse. By believing he could not possibly be the villain, he ignores all the signs that this is exactly what he has become. And back in Bran's last chapter, Ramsay, uh, Theon let Reek out of his cage, and that feels symbolically important as it represents what the ruling elite have done to Westeros by bringing war to the people of Westeros. The Reeks, the Biters, the Rorgers, the Shagwells, the Gregors, the Ticklers, and because I'm fresh off listening to Girls Gone Can's analysis of the sacrifice, the Clayton Suggses have all been unleashed in Westeros by the needs of war. Now, of course, none of these men were good before the start of the war. I mean, Clayton Suggs was fucking torturing people in the Dragonstone dungeon, especially women, as was covered so brilliantly by the Girls Gone Cannon podcast. Go ahead and listen to those episodes. They're great. But Theon, you know, none of these men were good, but war is empowering them to expand their death blossom farther out. Theon doesn't have enough of his own men to hold Winterfell. He only came with 20. Tywin hires the Bloody Bumbers to prosecute his war crime on the Riverlands, and Robb Stark needs Roose Bolton on the field and the Freys, despite how Roose scares him and how the Freys are just total pieces of shit whenever we encounter them. It's just a numbers game, right? It's how leaders rationalize the evil conduct of their subordinates. The greater good must be served. Winterfell must be held. And now Reek is joining Theon in hunting children for the, the greater good? I'm, I'm confused. Again, this feels like another spot where George is hammering home the theme that war endangers innocents and especially children. Bran is continuously endangered by adults playing their adult games. Jamie pushed Bran from the window when he discovered Jamie and Cersei had played back at the start of his story. And now Bran's flight from Winterfell, alleged flight from Winterfell rather, endangers Theon's Game of Thrones at Winterfell, his tenuous hold on power, and most importantly, his fragile, fragile ego. Yes, well said. So the hunting party assembles by the Hunter's Gate, appropriately enough. The natural imagery throughout the chapter is lovely. We see emphasized the dawn light, the frosty air, it's very painterly. But George immediately contrasts this beauty with violence by listing all the weapons everyone has brought along. Theon has his bow. He thinks back to saving Bran's life with an arrow in book one and tells himself he'll be willing to take Bran's life with another arrow if it comes to it. Would he have done that? Well, who knows? George swerves on us there as he does with Stannis and Edric Storm by diverting Theon in a different direction, set up here by Reek's bulging sack. The point is less whether Theon would have actually killed his foster brothers, and more that he feels the need to play the role of a man who would. Right, and I think like the atmosphere at the start of The Hunt is supposed to evoke Bran's opening chapter from A Game of Thrones. 
here's the wording from the opening lines from that chapter. The first lines that George ever wrote in a song by Sid Fire. The morning had dawned clear and cold with a Christmas that hinted at the end of summer. They set forth at daybreak to see a man beheaded, 20 in all, and Bran rode among them nervous with excitement. Theon is operating at his superficial Ned Stark role here, and we even have Agar with a massive axe that subs for Ned's great sword, Ice. Theon's hunting party is searching for wolves too, and Bran 1 has the boys finding the wolves at the end of the chapter. And what is it that Theon said back then after Holland said that the wolves would be dead soon enough? The sooner the better, Theon agreed. He drew his sword. Give the beast here, Bran. Game of Thrones Bran 1 also features Theon out with Bran for the execution, and Theon acting like an ass and kicking Garrett's head. Theon follows up on his prior ass hattery in this chapter, arrogantly thinking that he can find the boys easily enough and then he'll be skinning wolves soon enough too. Again, George is hammering home the theme of this chapter that Theon is a transgressive Ned Stark perverting the prior peace and harmony that existed when the Starks were in charge of Winterfell in the first place. I love that, a transgressive Ned Stark. It makes me think about, you know, there's certain parallels as we'll get into more next with uh, Theon 5. There's certain parallels between these Winterfell chapters and Arya's Harrenhal chapters, and that also Arya's time in Arya Harrenhal also has the feel of like a nightmare version of her home. Like Ty, when she says, like has a version of Ned's Lord's face. So it's like that's that happy, cherished time at Winterfell has just corrupted and gone to shit in both these storylines. I think that's great. So as Theon follows the trail, it leads not south to Sir Roderick as he expected, but northwest through the Wolf's Wood toward Asha at Deepwood Mott. Theon cannot bear the thought of another humiliation, the stripping down of his masculine ego that he has suffered in all his chapters so far. In particular, he is still smarting about how Asha manipulated him, and how effortlessly she plays the role of ironborn heir that he can't seem to pull off. If Asha captures the Stark heirs that he let escape, he would lose any chance of leveraging his conquest of Winterfell into his father's love and crown. So he prepares to kill them instead, because he thinks it is better to be seen as cruel than foolish. This is a dynamic George comes back to a lot. It animates Stannis as well. I must rule through fear because men do not love me as they did my brothers. This is the core of Tywin's philosophy. I must rule through fire and blood to wipe out my father's weaknesses. And this mindset tempts Danny throughout her story in Slaver's Bay, even as she tries with all her might to resist, knowing the dreadful implications. Once you have power... You want to hold on to it. What do you do when faced with the choice of losing your power or, lo or losing your humanity? This struggle doesn't only take place within Theon's head, though. Maester Lewin is here to force him to talk about it. This is probably my favorite part of the chapter. The dialogue is so precise and well-paced. As we will see in Theon's final chapter in this book, Lewin has uh, conflicted feelings of his own regarding the new master of Winterfell. Lewin hates what Theon has done and is doing. Yet he still owes Theon service in his mind, and more to the point, can't bring himself to hate Theon personally. Lewin just knows Theon too well. More than Balin ever did, probably more than Ned ever did either. He knows why Theon's doing all of this. He sees the opportunity to mitigate the damage, scraping his way past the outer shell of Theon's ironborn identity to get to the man he knows. Lewin starts by comparing hunting to a mere ride through the woods, the kind they would all take in better days. Does this have to end in blood? Lewin grants that Bran and Rickon running off was great folly. Now, of course, there's no way he believes that. He's just trying to placate Theon. The boys remain Theon's foster brothers. Lewin, and George, is reminding the reader that Theon is contemplating a form of kinslaying. Theon snaps back that only Rob ever treated him like a brother. As he will tell Sir Roderick the way he was treated at Winterfell Chafes. 
He didn't suffer physical harm, but the threat of it hung over him and impacted how everyone treated him. He was a dead man walking. He wasn't truly at home here, but it turns out he's not at home back on the Iron Islands either, and his blood brothers, if anything, treated him worse when they were alive. Theon knows intellectually that Bran and Rickon have more value alive, but emotionally he needs to fill this hole inside by violence if necessary. Lewin has done his duty to the Stark boys left in his care by their mother, but what makes me love him is that he doesn't stop there. He risks Theon's anger by trying to save as many lives as possible. Lewin can't defend people with a sword like Brienne, so this is how he does the right thing. Right, and similar to Brienne, he's not a knight necessarily, but he's a knight of the mind. The role that Maesters fulfills, he tells Bran. He uses his mind against Theon here, and I'm reminded of how Tyrion framed brain power in book one. My mind is my weapon, my brother has a sword, King Robert has his warhammer, and I have my mind. Lewin outwits Theon at every turn and uses his voice and intellect to win because he knows that's the more potent weapon in this scenario. And like you, this is my favorite part of the chapter two. The dialogue is precise. The writing is really, really good. But for me, the thing that really strikes me is how emotionally poignant this moment is. Lewin, and you have to read through the subtext a little bit. Lewin is endangering himself knowing that Theon's ego ego. Theon's ego is an eggshell. It can crack easily, which could lead to Lewin dying. I mean, Septon Shale had just been murdered by Theon for less than what Lewin is doing here. But Maester Lewin endangers himself so he can, quote, save the children. And to me, this feels of almost equal emotionally emotional import and power as Ilaria Stark advocating for the children in a dance with dragons after the mountain's head is presented to her. Lewin is risking his own life to save others. Would that we do similarly? I think that's a great comparison. It's this sense of trying to pluck as many people and as many lives out of the path of the war as you possibly can, knowing you're going to fail to a certain extent. Lewin advises Theon to spare Jojen and Mira as well, because they could be useful hostages against their father, Howland Reed, who is presently gearing up a guerrilla campaign against Victarion and Moat Caelan. Again, Lewin isn't a quizzling. He isn't actually trying to help out the Ironborn in their campaign. But by pretending to, he can potentially save the Reeds. Lewin then moves on to Hodor, and here he has no political axe to grind. Hodor is not important in the Game of Thrones, and Lewin can't pretend otherwise. So the only appeal he can make to Theon is personal. You know Hodor. You know he does what he's told. You know he had no choice in this. How many times has he helped you out, done what you told him to do? That's a subtle reminder that Theon knows these people better than his Ironborn. They haven't been around to scour his mail, but Hodor has. Theon thinks of Hodor as being nothing to him. Not good, not bad, pure neutral. Not even a person, really, as sadly many people think of the mentally disabled. But as long as Hodor doesn't fight, they'll spare him. Lewin hasn't changed Theon's worldview, his corrupted thought process, but within that framework he has managed to save as many lives as possible. Osha is where Theon draws the line. She swore an oath directly to Theon and betrayed it. She's going to die for that. Lewin seems to realize he's pushed Theon as far as he can go and does not make an attempt to save Osha's life. And I can't blame him, he's doing his best in his position. Lewin does, however, work in one more subtle jab at Theon before falling back. He says, oh yes, he makes no apologies for Oathbreakers. <laughs> hmm. Who could he be referring to there beyond Osha? Hmm. Lewin then thanks Theon for his mercy. The theme of mercy will become increasingly important in Theon's story. He denies it at the end of this chapter, but when his next chapter opens, he is begging for mercy in his dreams. 
He receives the opposite of mercy at Ramsay's hands, and one of the meta-questions of Theon's story in A Dance with Dragons is what mercy for him at that point would really look like. Would death be kinder, or a painful transformation? In this moment, Mercy works to encapsulate Theon's inner conflict. He doesn't reject it entirely, not yet, but nor does he embrace it. Instead, he regards it as a trap, impossible to reconcile, just as Jaime will say about oaths in a few chapters. The politics of Mercy cut both ways. Either you show too much and are considered weak, or you show too little and are considered monstrous. Where's the sweet spot? The problem is not the nature of Mercy itself, for Mercy is God's grace-given form, as the Bard tells us. The problem is how it's shaped by the political context. Tytos Lannister's mercy was widely seen as a sign of weakness, so his son Tywin ran in the opposite direction, eventually abandoning mercy altogether. It's very difficult to choose your values over your context, your political incentives. Even the most well-intentioned people have trouble with this, and Theon is not that. <laughs> That's why a man like Septon Maribald, who has devoted himself to his values at the expense of the political context, is so rare. It's a demanding life. Theon knows that Lewin has given him good advice. He knows that for the Ironborn to establish a lasting kingdom in the north, they have to find that sweet spot between mercy and justice, as Ned Stark did. He knows this because he has not wholly been consumed by the old way, like his father and uncles. Yet ultimately, his instincts still line up with theirs, just in a more kind of childish, knee-jerk way. For all Theon tells himself that he has a firmer grasp on northern politics than the other Greyjoys, he still admits that he hadn't considered the political implications of the Reeds' presence at Winterfell. The only thought he gave them was idly considering dragging Mira off to bed. Theon knows, as he says, that force and fear can only carry you so far, but when push comes to shove, he can't imagine any other way to be. He thinks wistfully about marrying Sansa to cement his claim, but she's not here. And at chapter's end, Theon will commit himself to staking his reputation on dead Starks, not live ones. And in the process, abandons Mercy. Yeah, he does abandon Mercy. It's one of those really just heartbreaking moments for, for Theon. Even the, We were talking about this in the mini minisode about how George does a really good job of threading the line between showing that Theon is being a dumbass and also being morally reprehensible here while also being sympathetic to Theon. I think he does that really well when we get to chapter's end. Thinking about some of the political context of what happens after Theon leaves Winterfell, in Storm and Dance, the Boltons were going to follow up on Theon's unstated advice to secure their hold of the North by marrying Ramsay to Arya. The Boltons, as we find out, will not be utilizing mercy at all. They are all in on fear. I mean, they have a castle called the Dreadfort, for fuck's sake. I mean, and though that is presented initially as the winning strategy to hold the North, it only works for the short term. Even Theon in this chapter says that force and fear can only carry you so far. Ramsay's mistreatment of Jane Poole, coupled with Bruce's participation and planning of the Red Wedding, will bring the Boltons down nearly as fast as Theon's reign in Winterfell is brought down. The problem here is that Theon thinks he's threading the needle of offering a middle course of mercy and fear when he's not. As you were saying earlier, the reality is that Theon is vacillating between poles that the Ironborn and Northmen alike are really unsure where Theon is going to land on this particular moment in this particular Theon mood. I mean, notice that Theon starts by saying he might have to kill Brandon Rickon, so he's not to be laughed at. Then Lewin convinces him not to kill him. Then at chapter 10, it's back to killing Brandon Rickon. It's all based on Theon's emotions, on his mood. It's not any sound policy that's going on here. Theon took Winterfell because he needed his dad to look at him like a son. He holds it because he knows that nothing he knows nothing else and is emotionally tied to the place, and his rule of this castle and its people is entirely sourced to emotion, not policy. And that emotion increasingly overtakes him as we go. 
So far as I've been saying, Theon has been reasonably competent in terms of his hunter's eye for details, even while failing at everything else. But as the hunt proceeds, even that skill starts to abandon him. As the trees grow wilder and the road more treacherous, symbolizing Theon stepping into uncharted moral territory, they come upon the corpse of an elk. Theon is smart enough to notice that only the direwolves have been at the elk. Osha would certainly think to take some meat along, but she didn't. Theon, however, is not smart enough to reach the correct conclusion. Osha didn't come this far, and the direwolves are leading him on their own. Theon doesn't even notice the next clue. When the trail leads them to a stream, it is Wex who notices that there are only paw prints in the mud. It doesn't seem like there were people here at all. Again, it's all about communication and translation of information. The paw prints communicate something to Wex, and Wex has to communicate it to Theon despite being mute. It isn't even Theon who understands Wex's point, but Joseph, the master of horse. And this reinforces how Theon has failed to internalize his observations. Theon's hunting skills do snap back into focus as he splits up the team to pursue their prey in multiple directions, up and downstream, with a few sent back to recheck the route prior to the elk corpse. These are smart moves. But just as the political strength of House Stark is beyond Theon's grasp, so too is their magical power, and as always in the Clash of Kings, the two go together. Farland says the wolves would never leave the boys for long. Ramsay says it doesn't make sense for animals to keep running along a stream bed. By the secular rules of the material world, they're both right. But the wolves don't follow those rules. They're cunning enough to play out their roles as if they were human, because they are bonded, magically, with their Starks. We also see this with Ghost in the Storm of Swords, who seems to follow John's orders even though it means parting from him and experiencing danger. Theon can only process this setback in political terms, thinking to himself that the whole North will rally around Bran and Rickon if they escape him. He's not wrong about that. But it's the hidden sorceress side of things that is allowing Bran and Rickon to make good on their politically powerful escape. We see that combination in action when Little Walder speaks up, saying they'll never find the boys because the reeds have strange Cranogman ways. For Little Walder, this makes the Cranogmen sneaks who don't fight fair. But the phrase is sneak and don't fight fair all the time. Just look at the Red Wedding. The Cranog men probably do have magic, but what Little Walder is actually reacting to are the grounded guerrilla tactics they use. And the Freys hate those tactics because the Cranog men have used them to resist the economic and political power of House Frey. Magical and political power are not separate. They intertwine, transforming each other like mixing paints together. Lewin also engages in this process. He tells Theon that the histories speak of the Cranog men getting in good with the children of the forest. Maybe they do have secret powers. And I love this because Lewin is encouraging precisely the kind of magical mindset he was working so hard to discourage in Bran. In this case, however, that mindset helps him out by spooking Theon and lowering morale in his hunting party. Magical and political power make use of each other whenever they need to, depending on the situation. Right. Again, Lewin is using his brain here in order to outwit Theon and hopefully to turn him aside from hunting the hunting the kids that he actually loves and cares about. And I think, too, like George does a really good job of setting up the scene because nature seems to be fighting against Theon, too. You got the dark trees, the treacherous gullies and cuts, the wild woods of the deep wolf's wood. And there's a feeling that much as Stannis finds in A Dance with Dragons, the north slash nature itself is fighting against Theon's entry into their territory. It reinforces 
reinforces Theon's own perception as an outsider in an unnatural nature setting. By thwarting Theon, nature rejects Theon's dominion over him. It's great. So when Little Walter Frey and Maester Lewin tell Theon that the Krennic men have secret powers, it adds fear into Theon's mindset. Suddenly, the woods seem to deal darker than it had a moment before, as if a cloud had passed before the sun. Now, George might be taking some inspiration from J.R.R. Tolkien's Ents in the Rise of the Forest from the Two Towers to overthrow Saruman and his power, but, you know, it's not quite so overt in George R. R. Martin's world as it is in Tolkien's. George has compared the religion of the North to the Old Gods to Celtic animism, and the religion of the Old Gods is sourced to trees, heart trees, werewoods, etc. That religion, in turn, is sourced to the Children of the Forest and the Old Magics. Again, it's the Northmen who join up with the Children of the Forest in adapting and adopting their religion. The connection between nature and man in the North is religion itself, and Theon, the outsider slash insider, is not welcome, and the mix of nature and magic will thwart Theon here. Or so Theon starts to believe. He might even be right. As darkness falls, it becomes clear that Theon has failed. As objectionable and ludicrous as his thought process has been, George has done such a good job of immersing us in it that we feel the bile rising in his throat. The walls have closed in. Theon fears humiliation more than anything else, and he has now guaranteed his own humiliation on a continental scale. For once, his swaggering cannot cover up material reality. There is no way to spin this. The Starks were the key to everything, and he let them go. All his arbitrary posturing before the people of Winterfell looks even sillier than it did in the moment. Imagine their faces when he comes crawling back. How can he credibly rule as a fearsome conqueror after this? And that's to say nothing of what his father and sister will think, as Theon quickly realizes. All their contempt is now justified. He will never be deemed one of them worthy of the sea stone chair. He has no home now. It is in this moment that Theon becomes most vulnerable to temptation. And so it is in this moment that Ramsay steps forward to claim his soul. Over the course of A Clash of Kings, Ramsay slowly approaches the narrative camera. He swims closer into our view every time he appears, until he fully unveils himself to us at the end of the book. This is a big step forward. He's been easy to ignore so far. Reek, as he calls himself, has been in the background, an unpleasant avatar of a subplot that appears to have gone nowhere. But now he's steering the plot. He's already proven himself capable of taking advantage of any angle open to him, hence disguising himself as Reek and swearing his service to Theon. The next move is to earn Theon's trust enough to afford Ramsay the opportunity to escape. How do you earn someone's trust? By coming through for them when they're in desperate need, especially if they have to keep it a secret. Theon needs the Starks. He doesn't have them. How do you solve this? The same way Ramsay survived this long, disguise and deception. Ramsay ensured Reek's death and then used Reek as an identity to hide the truth. He is now tempting Theon to do the same thing with the Starks. Kill two other boys and drape the Stark identities over their bodies. It is a chilling proposition, not only for the violence involved, but for the worldview it expresses. In Ramsay's worldview, the peasants are so subhuman that their lives should be literally substituted for his own. Now, you could definitely argue that's also the worldview of basically all the nobles if you break (laughs) it down, but most don't consciously think about it that way. Ramsay does, and glories in it. By tempting Theon down this path, he not only makes himself valuable to Theon, but he also ensures that he holds a secret Theon doesn't want out. 
This binds them to the point that Theon feels he can really only turn to Reek for assistance, letting him go off to recruit Dreadfort men in his next chapter. Theon is thus tied to his future tormentor both logistically and morally. In order to claim his prize, he follows the Bastard of Bolton down to hell. Of course, the first-time reader doesn't know any of this. Not only are we ignorant of Reek's true identity, we don't know what his plan is. As George writes it, Theon understands immediately what Ramsay is implying that they do. But the author holds back on clarifying the plan to the reader. We get some clues that Theon is pulling out this, this stark headpin, enough for it all to hold together when we do learn the truth. But we are being deliberately kept in the dark about the payoff at chapter's end. This cliffhanger ending was a smart strategy in retrospect. It has several effects. First of all, it leaves us desperate to find out what happened, and so when we are told Bran and Rickon are dead, it's all the more of a blow because the agony has been extended across multiple chapters in POV characters. Secondly, this fits the overall pattern of Theon 4 specifically, in which everyone is playing with information and trying to translate it into a legible form. Just as Theon reads the lack of wolf howls, just as Wex reads the paw prints on the muddy riverbank, so we have to read the limited information we're given and reach whatever conclusion we can. Finally, by not revealing what Theon is actually deciding to do, George keeps the focus on Theon's mindset, the self-image forming around the decision. Lewin reminds him of mercy, the tether to humanity Theon promised to hold on to, and Theon rejects it. He says it's because the boys have made him angry, but because Theon is a POV, we know the truth in his thoughts. He's doing this because he believes it is better to be feared than laughed at. He would rather be a monster than be thought of as weak. If anything, this is worse. Theon isn't committing child murder out of blind, unthinking rage. It's a calculated choice about the kind of person he wants to be. It backfires, of course. No one fears him for this, because as Asha has to gently explain to him, it doesn't take a badass to murder children, <laughs> one of whom is disabled. Instead, everyone despises him. Machiavelli would tell Theon that he has now screwed up his incentives royally. He will never rule Winterfell. All of that's ahead of him, and us. In the moment, though the first-time reader doesn't know what Theon is about to do, we feel an icy plunge in our chest as we realize who he's about to be. I think that much is clear right away. You're right. And murder begets more murder. Atrocity begets more atrocity. Theon begets more of himself, I guess, in the narrative. I mean, Ramsay's aim with Theon here is to transform him into a mini version of himself. Theon is already a murderer with Mikanon and Shale, so he can become a child murderer too, right? Ramsay is making Theon his reek long before Theon is down in the Dreadford dungeons, losing fingers, toes, flesh, and penis. The transformation happens internally and then gets reflected by the external torments Ramsay inflicts on Theon between Clash and A Dance with Dragons. Theon declares to the Winterfell crowd that he won't flay people while he's Lord of Winterfell. But in between this chapter and the next, he flays the bodies of the children at the mill. Theon descends into his depravity, but it's not kind of a gleeful, chaotically evil Ramsay, the kind of the way that he does it. It's also not some sort of cold Tywin or Randall-esque lawful evil, which of course they're not really that way, but beside the point, that's the popular perception of them. Theon's feeling at the end of this chapter is relief. He can just do these three more murders and two more flayings and it could all be over for him, right? He could be Ned Stark again. He could gain the love of the people of Winterfell and the love of his father. But Theon 5 opens with Theon's subconscious ripping away any relief that Theon feels at chapter's end. 
He knows he's done some horrific shit here, and his soul is thinning. It's going to only grow thinner still, which makes George's work with Theon in A Dance of Dragons amongst his finest work in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Set up here in A Clash of Kings, pay off in A Dance with Dragons. Mm, that was all so well said, sir. That's just absolutely perfect. That's a great way to, to shift this now into foreshadowing and groundwork. Theon says in this chapter that he has locked away every sword and axe in Winterfell, yet he suspects that some are hidden from him. And he's right. There are swords down in the crypts still, and Team Bran will take several of them with them when they leave the castle at the end of the book. Right, and that becomes like a part of the mystery of what's happening in A Dance with Dragons because Lady Barbary Dustin goes down there and says, hey, wait, there's swords missing from some of these crypt statues. What's going on with that? And Theon's like, uh, I, I have no idea what's happening with that without realizing that it was actually done uh, in, in contrast to what happened here in Theon 4, that Bran and Rickon are down in the crypts. And of course, they're going to take the swords with them as they escape Winterfell and then use those swords on their way up north. So Theon also thinks about how the Boltons used to flay their enemies, used to, but that practice ended when they bent the knee to the Starks. But hey, you know, maybe the practice continues. I mean, the Umbers practiced the, the Prima Nocta the first night, right of the first night. The Boltons might be flaying people. You never know, right? Theon, you're going to learn the old way. You're going to learn the hard way that old ways do indeed die hard with the Boltons. That practice was just lying dormant. If indeed it ever was, it was always waiting to reemerge. And now we're seeing that in the chaos of the Civil War. Theon describes Sansa as probably being ripe for betting now. And she will have her first period a couple chapters from now in A Clash of Kings. And... You know, Theon's a little old to be going through the same kind of coming-of-age stuff as, as the, the Stark things themselves, but he is kind of commenting on it because he knows them so well as his foster siblings. And so as, as they go through their kind of their coming-of-age arcs, Theon is kind of on the outside as he will be with Bran in A Dance with Dragons. Right. And I think we were talking about this again in the minisode that we do every week, but we talked about how Theon has had an arrested development phase. So he knows that Sansa's like physically becoming a, a woman, so to speak, in terms of, of her flowering and her, and her first period. But... Theon is not, but it was, I know this is going to be very controversial to say this, but Sansa seemingly is more mature than Theon Greyjoy at this point, despite being at least six years younger than Theon at this point in the chapter. So again, Sansa is Sansa hashtag, excuse me, Sansa greater than sign Theon Greyjoy. I know my bravery cannot be stopped. Terribly controversial, sir. You'll never survive this one. <laughs> so Theon thinks to himself and just like, you know, reeling and anxious that the North will rally around Rob's brothers if they escape. And he's right about that. It's just it takes a lot longer than he thinks because, you know, everyone believes for a while that Bran and Rickon are dead. But by the time you get to a dance with dragons, that's exactly what's happening. Wyman Manderley wants to rally things around Rickon. And although uh, obviously Arya isn't one of Rob's brothers and Jane Poole isn't even Arya. We do see Northwind marching for the Ned's girl. So Theon is indeed right that even in exile, the Starks are powerful sources of inspiration for the Northerners. And he knows he's never going to be that way. He can't be that way because, again, he's looking at Ned Sark and only seeing the surface level that Theon was exposed to. Only looking at Ned Sark as this cold guy who held ice over his head and his neck for his, his entire young adult life. And... As a result, he can't see that why people want to rally around and rally behind him. I think it's interesting that potentially for the Ironborn, as we're going to discuss when we get deeper into Feast and Dance of Dragons in a couple of years, that Theon might end up being the same sort of rallying cry for the North, for the, not the, for the Ironborn rather, in trying to overthrow Euron Greyjoy if Asha can figure out how to get Theon out of Stannis' clutches and, of course, try to get Theon not executed by Stannis Baratheon for. Of course, the crime that he commits between this chapter and the next chapter in murdering the Miller's boys, which of course everyone thinks he murdered Robin Bram. But that's a discussion we can we can have in a few years, but I do think it's an interesting parallel we see here between a clash and, and and a dance with dragons. Agreed. So moving into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode, 
George has said he's decided to come up with more material for Osha. And I think, you know, given that she is not actually present in this chapter, but she's doing so much in this chapter, I thought this would be a good time to talk about what, what, what we think that might be. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because multiple times in the years since Dance's publication, George has said that Osha would return, be influenced by, by Natalia Tana's portrayal of Osha from the throne show, and quote, we'll be seeing a lot more of Osha in The Winds of Winter. Meanwhile, as recently revealed in a sample from James Hibbard's book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, George told David Benioff and Dan Weiss that they should not cut Rickon Stark from the show as he has big plans for him come The Winds of Winter. Meanwhile, George has also stated that we'll be seeing unicorns in the Winds of Winter, and apparently there will be sex near unicorns in the Winds of Winter. Great. Can't wait. Uh, that should be interesting, I guess. <laughs> no idea what that's going to look like. Anyways, these are all tied together as we learn from Wex in Davos' final Dance with Dragons chapter that Rickon, Osha, and Shaggy Dog all headed out for the island of Skagos. So what new material might George have in store for Osha in Winds? I mean, first it seems... Readily apparent that whatever George has in mind for Rickon and Osha, it was not something that was duplicated in Game of Thrones, a television series. You might have heard of it. D&D had no material really for Osha and Rickon in season six. I mean, the reason why is that where George kind of entangles and complicates his plots further and further, the showrunners just go for an extreme streamlining route because they saw the end in sight and that's where they're pressing towards. So instead of getting a Rickon versus Sansa versus John conflict in The Winds of Winter or Dream Spring, we got a John versus Sansa with Arya in the mix. And I mean, that version of hashtag Stark Bowl we got in season seven was half-baked at best. I mean, we both have some significant criticisms of that of, of that plot point. And that also was easily resolved in season seven with the Starks joining together and then executing Littlefinger. But I think George has a longer, complicated conflict in mind and a post-Bolton, post-Stannis North. Sansa will show up with the Vale Knights, Jon will have the Wildlings, and maybe the surviving Karstarks in tow. If Rickon appears, he may end up having the support of the Manderlys and their vassals. He'll also have Osha. If Rickon and Osha show back up in the main northern plot, I have to imagine that Osha will be quite protective of Rickon and his interests. And this will be kind of a fascinating parallel to Jon, whose backing will come primarily through the Wildlings like Tormund and the others that are around his camp, Val and others. Intriguingly, back in Bran's fifth chapter in the Game of Thrones, Osha actually said something interesting. The boys, as Bran's worth nothing dead but alive, gods be damned, think what Mance would give for have Benjen Stark's own blood to hostage. That Osha seems to know Mance or know of him might mean that she maybe knows and definitely knows of Tormund Giantsbane too. Could Osha be part of the solution to Stark Bowl? Hashtag 21. Could she leverage her relationship with Mance Rayer and Tormund Giantsbane for this purpose? Yeah, maybe. But I think I may be getting over my skis a little bit because this begs the question. Does Osha ever leave Skagos at all with Rickon Stark? That's one of the big mysteries for Davos's plot and wins. And this is something that uh, uh, Chloe from Girls Gone Canon has, has written and thought a lot, a lot about. And I'll kind of leave it to, to her writings to do the, <laughs> the overall work on that. But I think wherever the negotiation takes place regarding Rickon's fate, whether it's on Skagos or back on the mainland, I think Osha is definitely being set up to play a major role in it, especially since George says he's going to expand her role, she's been the mentor figure to him this whole time, the way Bloodraven has been for Bran or Littlefinger for Sansa, the Faithless Man for Arya. We haven't seen his training montage the way we've seen with the rest because Rickon's not a POV, but in a sense, we're going to have to catch up to a certain extent with it. And I agree about the northern political plotline unfolding, you know, in the wake of the Boltons. I don't I don't know if I see it as a faction standing off, including John. I think just John might be the resolution to uh, a potential standoff between 
you know, the Vale Knights for Sansa and the Manderleys for Rickon, and then the, you know, Galbert Glover and Mage Mormont show up with Jon as, as the possibility to do the tiebreaker. And if that happens, I think Osha could be a significant voice in arguing that it's okay for Rickon not to be, you know, King of the North and might want, you know, a, a different life for him or just worry about his age. Or I could definitely see it if the wildlings are a significant part of this, these politics, if they're behind John, I could see Osha being, you know, part of that. If she sees that John is emerging as a faction, she goes and talks to the wildlings about John. She sees he's, you know, he's on the level that he might be okay. And then she's, she's fine with Rickon retreating and Rickon takes his cues from her. I could, I could definitely see George uh, writing that in. Cause he would, the, the overall trajectory of John emerging as the new leader would still be there, but he could beef up just that side of things. That makes total sense as an addition. I think I think you're right too, and I think the other aspect that OSHA can point out, and I believe this is this is made explicit in in Davos's fourth chapter from Dance Dragons. It's been a little while since I read it, but they know that Bran Stark is alive, and Bran would have the better claim than Rickon. That might be the way that they can kind of get sure. Rickon's claim kind of taken care of, or to say something like, "Well, John can rule here in the North for the time being until Bran Stark returns to claim his throne." I think that ultimately any resolution for any Stark conflict or the potential for them vying for control of the North is going to be in the form of Bran Stark. I do wonder whether they'll they'll have some sort of astral plane version of Bran coming in and bringing all the Starks together and, and, and re- resolving the conflict that way. But it's something I guess we'll have to see uh, in, in the Winds Winter. But I, but I do think it's interesting that, that Osha... And this is something that we, George has not talked to, George has been asked many, many times, am I going to, is the Winds Winter going to be influenced by the, by what happened in the Game of Thrones show? And George is like, no, 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 that's, that's not the case. Except for Osha, Osha, of course, Natalia Tana, yeah, Tonks, man. He, she, she just like, <laughs> knocked me off my, knocked my socks off. I want her to be, uh, this is what I'm going to be imagining when I write Osha in, in the Winds of Winter. So I, I'm curious what, what that actual plot is going to look like. Uh, I, I think it'll be found in Davos's chapters primarily and may be found in other chapters if Rickon does return to the North. But if he doesn't, I think it'll be a, a good, uh, good, good thing to have Davos in the mix potentially saving another child, potentially being involved with another woman in the form of Osha. Some people in the comments are talking about the potential for Osha and Davos being the people who are having sex and by the unicorns in, in the winds of winter. So who knows, man? Well, Davos said he has known other women, so it's always a possibility. We'll have to see. That could has a potential to be one of the more awkward sex scenes, you know, in George's roster of <laughs> awkward sex scenes. Always, always room for one more. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for a Clash of Kings Theon 4. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to so much to all of you who've been watching these live casts. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, hit a thumbs up on YouTube, and also leave us a comment as well. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars at politics, vice and fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam. M.K., Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quantum, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, 
Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Later Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, and our two newest High Ladies, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the Inn at the Crossroads, and Lady Danielle of House Lannister. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much to all of our High Lords and High Ladies, and welcome to our new High Ladies, Veronica and Danielle. Appreciate you coming aboard. It means a lot. Thank you so much. So, join us next week for Clash of Kings John 6. I had forgotten that guy was in a Clash of Kings. As the bastard in black joins Corrin Halfhand and his crew as they plunge into the Frost Fangs. Oh man, start the uh, the Last of the Mohicans music because we're going deep <laughs> in the Frost Fangs. Another adventure chapter with John. We've been with John like about eight months uh, when we're recording this, have we? It's been a long time since we did John 4 and 5 together, so we naturally skipped over a bunch, but it's going to be great to get back to it. This is uh, some of the, my favorite stuff in John's chapters. It's, you know, there's plenty to enjoy earlier with him in the book, but it was a little slow in pacing. This is where it gets really exciting to read. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us, and we'll see you all next week for Clash of Kings John 6.